following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. So if you would, open up your Bibles uh, to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be at today. And uh, we are going to look at verse 1. And yes, we're going to go all the way to verse 22. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, uh, all the way up to uh, 22. Some of these uh, stories that we're reading about, and when we, when we preach Exodus, um, you probably find yourself, maybe if you grew up in the church, um, like a little kid hearing these stories, and then um, I don't know if, if you feel the same way, but um, I loved my Sunday school teacher when I was a kid. I really did, even though she punished me often. Um, and uh, and um, she had these things called felt boards. Does anybody remember a felt board? Felt board is, yeah, people are amening that. It's not an amen thing. It's just like, I just want to know yes or no. That's all I wanted to know. Um, and uh, what I'm learning is um, the felt board lied to me a couple of times because there's some stories in the Bible that you should not put on the felt board. Amen? There's just some things there uh, that uh, are, are, are a little bit more deeper than what they talked about. David and Bathsheba, anyone? So we're just going to leave that there and let that go because that's not in Exodus. Um, but Exodus chapter 3 when you start reading these stories that you had as a child, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how God moves us through the stages in our life. And, and maybe you're here today and you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, like, where I'm at right now is just not where I thought I would be. Um, and that could be good or bad. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I feel like God is just on delay. Like, I thought that God was going to do some really different things in my life, or I thought God was going to even do some things that were different this past week, or maybe this past year, or the year before that, right? I thought that God was going to, I've said that multiple times, God, I thought, and I think he looks back at me, and he says, that's the problem, you think, um, and you need to, to, to rethink, right, based off of what is true in, in my word, and so in Exodus, uh, Moses gets a call from the Lord at an old age, and when we're reading in Exodus chapter 3 this morning about Moses' call, it's going to teach us a very important spiritual principle, and that is that God's delay does not always mean God's denial. Sometimes we, as believers, find ourselves, and God is delayed in his response. God always answers prayers three ways, yes, no, and wait. And more often than not, he answers those prayers as wait, and he says, be patient. I'm working. I'm doing things that you don't even know about. And so there's sometimes in that, in that um, impatience on behalf of believers that we think that God has denied our prayer, when in reality, he's asking us to just be patient and let him be the one that's timing is perfect. And we don't always understand it, but Thomas Boston once said, he said, let us remember that the delay is not denial. And the prayers that you're praying right now, you need to just understand that delay is not denial. God might still be doing a great work in your life. Um, and if you're a believer, he is doing a great work in your life, even if you don't see it. It's not always easy to be patient, right? A dear friend of mine, he says, don't pray for patience because God will always give it to you. <laughs> um, but I've learned that if we pray for patience, God really 
brings us back to his promises, and that's, that's an awesome truth. So we wait on the Lord. Okay, well, how did we get to Exodus 3? If you were here last week, that's great. Um, you're kind of um, on a, a little bit of a head start, but if you weren't, let me just bring you up to speed. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we talked about um, a king, a pharaoh, and he is dead, and he is the king of Egypt, and another king has taken his place. We learned about Moses, God's servant, and how uh, he um, wasn't his, his servant just yet. He was actually uh, an Israelite, and as an Israelite, he was raised in secular society. He was spared um, from death because God said, uh, or the, the Pharaoh, the king, decreed, uh, really a, a horrendous decree, that all the firstborn should be killed, and Moses is spared from that. And Moses kills uh, an Egyptian um, in his 40s, and then he runs to a place called Midian, and he spends 40 years there. So before we go any farther, we need to understand in context, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is, is roughly 80 years old here. And while Moses is 80 years old, God is going to call him, but there's problems going on in, in this time period, and that is God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved. And they are struggling with slavery and oppression because the Egyptians essentially said that you're, getting, you're going to be too great for us because God said that you should multiply and fill the earth and you're doing a good job of that. And, and they were worried about the fact that they were going to be overthrown. And as the people are suffering, um, something interesting is happening. If you were a child of God at that moment, you would be thinking about God's promise that he made in Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to give you a land and your life was going to be a little bit easier than what you thought it was going to be. And maybe you're in that boat here today. You came to a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ and you thought your life was going to go one way and in reality, it's going a different way. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if God's really faithful to his promises. I don't really know what God is doing, but I know he intervened in a big way and he spoke that he would pull me out of some of these things and he hasn't done it yet, so he's kind of delayed. But God in his sovereign power here, he is ready now to act in accordance with his promises. And he's going to deliver his people through Moses regardless of his hesitation. And the lessons that we learn here from Moses are not just for Moses. They're for us too as well. So we take some of these truths and we go from the Old Testament into the New Testament and we implement them in our everyday life. And this is a familiar story, like I said, from our childhood. This is the burning bush. And there's two lessons that we learn from the burning bush. And I'm just going to give them to you before we start so that you can really start to think about them and ponder them and how to put them in your everyday life. The first one comes from the first six verses, and that's you are to have a healthy fear of the Lord. My concern for the church, as well as individual believers, is that we do not have a healthy respect and awe and adoration of God for who he is and what he can do and what he's capable of doing. So we need to make sure that we have a healthy fear of the Lord. And number two, when God calls, oftentimes, I don't know if you're like me or not, but you give him excuses. I'm really good at giving God excuses. Anybody else want to amen that? Man, God tells me to do something, I'll tell him 15 reasons why I shouldn't be the person to do that. But it, nevertheless, he's like, I'm going to be persistent with you. So let's look at the first uh, six verses in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was being disobedient and keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. The Bible does not say he was being disobedient. I just put that in there, okay? <clears throat> Jethro is his father-in-law. He's a priest of Midian which is where Moses lives, because remember, he fled from killing an Egyptian. And Moses takes his father-in-law Jethro's flock, he is a shepherd, to the west side of the wilderness. And he, came, he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
The angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame out of the midst of a bush. He looked, of course he did, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, (laughs) I think this is so funny how he he words this here. I will turn aside to see the great sight. Who does that? (laughs) When you see God do something amazing at your workplace, do you ever stop and go, God is doing a fantastic thing here. I will look upon it with my two eyes. But anyway, he does it. I will turn aside from my flock, the thing I'm supposed to be doing, and I will concentrate on something else that is happening that is of God. Why is this bush not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses. I don't think Moses heard him, so he says it a second time. Moses. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because there's a comma and then there's an exclamation point after the second Moses. It's like when you call your kids for dinner, right? Anyway, he said, here am I, which is interesting because somebody in Genesis answers the same way. And God says to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So what's happening here? All right, let's, let's look at this a little bit more intently. After 40 years of being in Pharaoh's courts, Moses' occupation now is a shepherd. Here he leads his father-in-law, Jethro. And if you want to circle that, an interesting side note for Jethro, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 16, he is also called Ruel, which is equivalent to his last name. So we could essentially call him Jethro Ruel, which is kind of a cool name. So if any of you are pregnant and you're looking for baby names, I think that's awesome. All right? And he's tending this flock, and he's in search of grassland. And so Moses ends up with the flock at Mount Horeb. Now, I researched this in depth, and Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai, just so we're on the same page, okay? Um, and if you, if you question that, Exodus 19 talks about it, and Deuteronomy 4 talks about it. But here, the reason it is called Horeb is a mountain of God because so many biblical events take place in this specific spot, like when God gave the law. So Moses is curious, and his curiosity is piqued, and he sees a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush that was burning that is not consumed. Now, if you want to, you can circle the word fire there, because that's an interesting term that is often a symbol of the presence of God. So, So track with me here just for a second. Before Moses knows of the presence of God, the presence of God is already present. Just because you don't see the presence of God does not mean that God's presence is not there. We good? Okay, so the burning bush could represent a lot of things. And let me tell you something. There's some commentators that do do some really crazy things with this passage of Scripture. But what we know for sure is that the fire sparked Moses' curiosity. And as his curiosity is piqued, we learn two truths about God. First truth is that uh, God wants our attention. So having a healthy fear of the Lord moves us into God wants our attention. Moses turns from his flock, which is rare. What shepherd do you know takes his eyes off his flock? This doesn't happen often, but he does it. And he sees a great sight. In Acts chapter 7, verse 31, uh, the, the passage speaks of this saying, when Moses saw it, he marveled. In other words, Moses is doing something secular, 
The presence of God is there, and it is so great that he takes his eyes off that which is secular and focuses on the sacred. Why? Because God wants his attention. So as Moses does this, he approaches to look more closely. Now, as we study the Old Testament, you're going to see the word God, and not knowing Hebrew does you a little bit disservice here, because every time you see the word God, it's usually a different name for God. So, in the Old Testament here, the word God is uh, his name Elohim, which is the living God. So, a different way to translate this would be, when Moses saw this sight, the living God wanted him to look more closely. Does that make sense? Okay, so you're seeing attributes of God come out when we study the text. This is one reason why we study the Bible, because these things come to fruition, and it shows us what God is all about. So now God has Moses' attention, and he calls him twice by name, because sometimes you miss it. Amen? God calls you once, and he's like, I'm good with grace. I'll call you again. And so Moses responds the exact same way that Abraham responds. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, and the exact same way that Jacob responds in Genesis chapter 46, verse 2. Why? Because he knows that this is how you talk to God because of his heritage. And so, notice that God doesn't speak to Moses until he has his attention. So what? Oftentimes, you will study God's word, but it will not touch your heart because you do not give it the proper attention that it so rightfully deserves. That's Old Testament into New Testament. Also, Moses is a shepherd in an obscure place, but God hadn't forgotten him. So God might be trying to get your attention right where you are, but the question is, are you listening? And sometimes you're not listening because you don't have a healthy fear and adoration of who he really is. When we start to have an awe and adoration of the Lord, our eyes are taken off of this world and focus more on eternal things, and then we can hear God's voice more clearly because he has our attention. That's the same thing that's happening here. And if you disagree with that, go throughout the whole entire Bible, and you'll see all people come to God very similar. Okay? Two. Verse five. God gets Moses' attention. Now, I hate this passage of Scripture because... I know what it does in my life. And he wants Moses to be uncomfortable. God loves it when you're uncomfortable, right? He just thinks it's great. And uh, it's not because he's being snarky. It's not because he's trying to do things that that are are sneaky. No, he he wants you uncomfortable because in uncomfortable places, you grow the most. So God stops Moses from coming any closer. Here's the crazy thing. There's so many speculations for this reason. But, and this is just Pastor Jordan's little paraphrased version of the text here, okay? I would say that this is symbolism showing a barrier between sinful humanity and a holy God. After everything I read, after everything I study, there's so many people who look at this and say, well, it means this, and it means this, and it means this. I look at it and I say, if anything, it is a symbol of the fact that a holy God is stopping a sinful human man and saying there's a divide between us. And that is where Moses gets uncomfortable. If Moses hides his face for anything, he is aware of his sin when he is encountering the presence of God. So regardless, Moses, okay, um, here he comes, and God commands Moses to do something. He says, take the sandals off your feet, 
For the place you're standing is on holy ground. And Stephen says the exact same things in Acts chapter 7. Why do both of these biblical writers bring this up? This is the first use of the word holy. So if you would, circle that word holy in your Bible, which means to be set apart. And you are to be set apart. Why? Because God's presence is there. God's presence is in this place. And taking off of the sandals is a sign of humility and reverence and a way of eliminating the dust and dirt of the world, just like you would if you were to come into somebody's house, right? You do that sometimes, right? You come into person's house. We always ask people when we come to their house, is this a shoes house or not a shoes house, right? A shoes house is you get to wear your shoes in the house, wherever you want, uh, or, or you have to take your shoes off. If it's not a shoes house, you get to keep them on or vice versa, whatever you want to do, right? Here, Moses says, uh, God tells Moses, this is shoes off house, okay? You cannot bring that which is worldly into my presence. Now, second thing that's happening, Moses, or excuse me, God is also taking away Moses' personal comfort to get him closer. I'm gonna take off your shoes and I'm gonna pull you in and I'm gonna remind you of a covenant that I made in Genesis. Uh, Carol Tanksley says that when God wants you to grow, he makes you uncomfortable. And some of you may be uncomfortable in this place just with the message that's being preached today. Some of you may have got here and this is your first Sunday or you're listening online and this is your first time of listening and you feel uncomfortable. Don't run from that. Run to that. God is making us uncomfortable for a reason. If you read the Bible in its entirety, you won't find any or you won't find a lot of people who are comfortable. You'll find a lot of people who are confident in their faith. Just because I'm uncomfortable doesn't mean I'm not confident. So Moses responds. He hides his face, right? He's afraid to look at God, which reminds me of John's reaction in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Interesting. Second book of the Bible and last book of the Bible both speak of men falling on their faces. Bethany sang, holy, 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 and the church uh, rose up and sang with her, and we sang together in unison. Everybody will do that when it's all said and done. And I was just thinking, man, how awesome it will be to have like thousands and millions and, and hundreds of millions and billions of people singing that song. Now, in the Old Testament, let's talk about the fear of the Lord. To have a true, proper fear of the Lord involves your total response to the Lord. So you cannot have a fear of God if you don't have a relationship with God. We have the entire Bible. We know the rest of the text. God sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You cannot have a true fear of God if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The way you have a relationship with Jesus Christ is you confess your sin and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that his blood covers your sin and you are, what the Bible says, saved. Great. Many of us have done that today. But what we do is we take our salvation, we put it, we hide it way down deep, we shelf it, and we say, I'll deal with that when God calls me home. But God says, no, I want you to have reverence. Now, the English word reverence is from the Latin word awe or respect, which refers to a feeling of profound respect for someone or something which is often equated with God. Say it another way. Psalm chapter 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are not wise because we do not adequately fear the living God. Does that make sense? This Elohim, this creator of the universe. Oftentimes we are not, we are, we are not worshiping properly because we're not reverently bowing. 
Okay? And so here, God's making that clear in Moses' life. A genuine, holy fear of the Lord is often equated with us as believers. And what's interesting is in Revelation chapter 14, the last worldwide proclamation of the gospel says you fear God. So what's the point? What are you getting at, Pastor Jordan? Well, God wants to use you, but he cannot do so unless he has your uncomfortable attention. And the question is, does he? And I, I say this as nice as I possibly can, but I, and, and I fear it in my own life just as much as I fear it in your life. I'm, I'm, I'm worried that my to-do list is gaining my attention, and I'm comfortable in it, and I'm not comfortable in what God wants me to do. I'm worried, uh, and I shouldn't say worried because we just talked about this in Sunday school. I'm concerned, for those of you who are in the 9 o'clock hour, uh, I'm concerned that if somebody were to take my devices, I, I, would, I would want to worship that instead of the Word and the living God. Hmm. This is a healthy fear of the Lord, that I can take everything away from you and you would still be okay with our relationship. I can't have a healthy fear of the Lord unless I know him. And here's the crazy thing. I, I think we need to start praying, God, bring me to the fire of your presence so that the earthly things will burn up and burn away and I will not miss them at all. Mm, that's tough. So, so the question on the table, first and foremost, is do I have a healthy fear of the Lord? Awe, adoration, respect, like Moses. Now, here's the crazy thing is Moses, in verse 6, he says, he hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Why? Because of his sin. I mean, he was running away from the Lord, and here's this covenant God who's coming after him. And I love verse 7. Watch this. The Lord says, isn't it amazing? The Lord still speaks to us even, even though he knows us, and he knows all our sin and our shortcoming, and he's still going to use Moses, which is great. And the Lord says, surely I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, I love he puts Moses' attention back on what's transpiring because Moses may have forgotten. You're walking around with sheep, but my people are suffering in Egypt. I heard their cry because of the taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. I have that underlined twice in my Bible. You should too. And I've come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the pagans. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. He says it over and over again. I heard their cries. I know their cries. We talked about this last week. I've also seen the oppression which with the Egyptians oppressed them. Now, here's the crazy thing. Moses is hiding his face while God's talking, and I think this is where he turns his head, and he looks at him. He says, say what? Come, verse 10, I'll send you to the Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I think you have the wrong guy, all right? But Moses says to God. Now, here's the crazy thing. Every time I read Exodus, I love this. Do you notice that Moses talks back to God? Not in a disrespectful way, but he talks back to him. So many people look at me and they go, I don't think I could talk to God. If Moses can talk to God, you can talk to God, right? If Peter can talk to God, you can talk to God, right? Moses says to the Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, he said hey, I'll be with you, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you that I've sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt, that you shall serve the God on this mountain. He's showing Moses the end before he even gives him a start at the beginning of the race, 
And Moses is ignorant. So he says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God's like, why are we still talking? But I guess that's fine. God says to him, verse 14, I am the Lord. I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am, there it is again, sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, there is name again, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. And I am going to be remembered throughout all generations. Verse 16. So Moses, you're not going to go alone. Gather up the elders. I love this, right? Man, if I can't do it, I'll just grab the elders. And say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise, man, underline that, I promise I'll bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now listen to your voice. He's giving him the end before he gives him the beginning. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. We need to go to church. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, the right hand of God. So I'll stretch out my hand. I'll strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I'll give his people a favor in your sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty handed. God's saying, not only will you go, I'll go with you. You're going to be victorious in this. And I'll give you, give you some good stuff. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house, silver, gold, jewelry, for the clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder. That means just completely annihilate the Egyptians. Here's the crazy thing. When God calls, don't give excuses. Okay? A lot of passages of scripture, but listen. Lord told Moses he's aware of his people's afflictions. You should highlight that because the same thing was said in Exodus chapter 2. He's going to rescue them. Now, God, in verse 7 and 9, the word God there is the name of God, El Roy, which means the God who sees. So first we have Elohim, the living God. Now we have El Roy, the God who sees, revealing his attributes to us. He always knows his people's sufferings and justice. And he's willing to come down to divinely intervene to work in and through unjust suffering. But it has to be in his time. God's delay is okay. In every season in our world's existence, God has always been directly involved in exercising judgment and delivering his people. So many people have asked me in the past two years, where is God? He is right in front of your face. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he dwells within you. Don't forget that. Well, there's hard times, Jordan. That's how it goes. But we need to ask God to help us be aware of his presence, not only within us, but also within our world. Now, deliverance here comes two ways. Deliverance, first and foremost, in verse 8 and 10, is to a new land. God's goal in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt was to take them to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. This is the land of Canaan. Now, milk and honey is interesting because in the Old Testament, it shows agricultural prosperity, things that the people wanted. But this land is occupied by pagans. How are we supposed to go possess this land when there's pagans in it? These are immoral idolaters. Uh, John Woodward says it like this. He says, The work of redemption was accomplished by Christ in his death on the cross and has in view the payment of the price demanded by a holy God for deliverance of the believer. Keyword deliverance. From the bondage and the burden of sin. Old Testament 
We see people wanting to be freed in an earthly way. New Testament, God says, I have bigger plans for you. I'm going to save you in an eternal way. In redemption, the sinner is set free from his condemnation and slavery to sin. So from the land of milk and honey to a new heaven and new earth is the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If God had a plan for redeeming Israel, then he also has a plan for redeeming us believers. But it has to come through faith. Our new land is the new heaven and earth. It's a pointing to these things that will manifest themselves. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Okay? Now, what's interesting is people get attached to the world. So what are we talking about when we say don't give God excuses? Well, so many people have excuses on why they won't trust Christ. Uh, he's this and this and blah, 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 and everything else underneath the sun. You can give God all the excuses that you want, but that doesn't mean his promises are null and void. Because deliverance in the new land comes through obedience. First act of obedience is confession of sin and repenting and coming to Christ. Then continual obedience, which is sanctification. So watch this. In verse 11, to get righteous people to possess the land, God's going to use Moses, an unlikely person like John the Baptist, in an unlikely place at this mountain. And it looks like Moses is being humble, but in reality, he's reluctant, which you would be too. And while Moses expresses his inadequacy to fulfill God's purpose, God says, I did not make a mistake in calling you. Some of us think that, that, that God made a mistake in calling you. That's not true. And here's the other crazy thing. God called you to the specific place that you're at for two reasons, to evangelize and to edify. We were talking about this in the 9 o'clock hour too as well. Your current situation and status is a mission field that God has placed you in so that you can share your faith and also encourage believers. And so here, God's saying, I didn't make a mistake, Moses. You will be adequate, but it only comes through faith. Your adequacy only comes through your faith, obedient faith. And what's really funny is, I wish the Paul was around in Moses' time because Moses needs some Pauline teaching here. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. If you will claim in humility that you are weak, my power will be manifested there. I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. He says it's not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Same as the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. So notice, God answers all of Moses' objections he gives one assurance after the other. He encourages him. And when Moses says, I am not, God says, I am. Well, so what? What are we getting at here? Faith lays hold of what and who God is and obeys what God says. Faith sees opportunity while unbelief sees obstacles. What do you see? See, in your life sometimes, and, and I do it too. I'm not just throwing you under the bus. I see obstacles when God sees opportunities. So I can't give God my excuses when he says, you're being disobedient. So the question on the table is, if our obedience to the Lord helps others get delivered to a new land, are we being obedient to God's call? The biggest call that God gives us is Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? You love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're not obedient in those two things... How in the world do we look at God and say, well, you should give me some other things too? If you're obedient in the small, God's going to manifest that in the big. Um, old commentator. He says, I find myself, I find many of us <clears throat> seek to avoid immediately acting on the commands of God 
excusing this by our lack of information, knowledge, and training, which is what Moses is doing here. How many people want to think it over, right? How many times have we just, oh, I'm going to pray about this one, right? When in reality, if we were honest with ourselves, we're reluctant to obey God's leading. How excuse themselves because they have not gone to seminary or Bible college or not a pastor of the church or not a full-time missionary or whatever the case is. Very often, these are merely a smokescreen for unbelief. We're never ready to act on our own, but we're always ready when God says go. Now, here's the crazy thing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna land hard here this morning, and I don't mean this. Um, I, I hope this just comes across in love. God's calling you to raise godly kids. And, and sometimes we look at God and we give him excuses because we put other things in their hands, right? God's calling us to love our spouses and we give God excuses because we look at them and say, well, you don't know what she did or he did. God's calling us to love our neighbors, the people in our workplaces, and we give God excuses. See, it's interesting because we look at Moses and we think to ourselves, oh, well, this is, this is Moses. This doesn't have any bearing on my life. That's, that's not true. How many of us sometimes are praying about something when God looks at us and he says, I want you to put into action what you know to be true? And, and that's, this, is, this is right there. God calls us, okay, into a relationship with him. And when he calls us into a relationship with him, it's radical transformation from there on out. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And if Christ lives in me, that means I die to my old self and I serve him with everything that I have. So what relationship, what area are you in right now that you're praying about when God says you can stop praying and start participating by humbling yourself? Not just before the presence of God, but also in the presence of God's people. It's not about being right or wrong, right? That's not, that's not the case here. The case is to humble yourself under, under the Lord and be obedient to his commands. That's God's big problem with Moses is he's not coming underneath his care. He's still seeking for his own justification. So God called, Moses responds with fear and objections, and he gives God, um, and God gives him back two promises. I'll try to speed through these real quick because I think I'm going long. But um, this, this is huge, especially for 2022. Verse 12, 14, and 15, God says, I will be with you. I'll be present. The, 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 the word name here is important. Moses' request was that God give him an adequate name. Now, let's, let's think about this. Moses is asking God for his name is the same thing like asking, but God, what can you do? And so God tells Moses a new name. He says the word Yahweh, which is I am, or the Lord, and it replaces Elohim and El Shaddai. So the living God and Almighty come together as one, and this is Yahweh, the great I am. Okay, it's an ancient Hebrew word that has no vowels, and it's the most common name for God in the Old Testament. This is God personally identifying himself as a covenant king of Israel who's committed to fulfilling his promises to his people. So in other words, God's saying not only is he present, but he's powerful. Say that to yourself right now, whatever you're dealing with. Not only is God present in my life, but he's powerful in my life. Not only is God present in my life, but he gives blessing, and it might not be materialistic, but it will always be to manifest his glory. God 
God might not be, uh, God might be present in my life, but he's also good, regardless of what he takes away and what he gives. God's telling Moses to tell the people in obedience, they will see his presence manifested in their everyday life. Same thing the Hebrews says. I'll never desert you. I'll never forsake you. Just as God tells Moses that he's self-existent, he always was, always will be, he tells us the same thing in Christ. He is faithful and he's dependable, and as believers in Christ, God's presence is with you, and it's guaranteed now and forever. Second thing, God promises in obedience, his favor is upon you. And here's the thing I, I wish you knew, I wish I could explain this to you, I wish I could open your eyes to see this. When God's favor is upon you, the world will hate you. They just don't understand it. The purpose of God's deliverance was for Israel to worship the Lord. It's stated over 10 times in Exodus. Moses goes to the elders, he goes to the king, and then he leads God's people. Why? So they would be able to worship. It all goes back to worship. And worship isn't that they would be able to sing Chris Tomlin songs out in the middle of the wilderness. It's not worship. Worship is that they would be able to sing songs with their lives in word and deed, in obedience, in this land that God has given to them. Worship is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. They are living sacrifices, daily dying to themselves. They're no longer slaves of Egypt. They're slaves of the living God, and that's a good thing. Israel would be not only released from a powerful nation, but his people will also be given the spoils of Egypt that will construct the tabernacle where they can worship. So what? God wants your uncomfortable attention to be used for him. For one day we'll be delivered into a new land. And in our obedience to God's promises, his presence and favor is manifested. Maybe, just maybe, you're not seeing God in your everyday life because you're not being fully obedient to him. God's trying to get your attention. He's trying to make you uncomfortable. And you know what? It's not for naught. And we can't give God our excuses. We have to offer ourselves as faithful, obedient, submissive servants to see his promises manifested right before our very eyes. Close with this. Perhaps maybe, perhaps maybe, just maybe, it is not God who is delayed in doing great things in your life. Maybe, just maybe, it's you. Let's pray about that. God, Moses... (laughs) Here's your voice, and, and this is, it's just amazing because as we, as we dissect this story and we look at it, there's, there's things that your people, myself included, are praying for right now, and, and we're doubting your goodness and your greatness because you're delayed in the response, and, and maybe, just maybe, you want us to be a little bit more proactive. We, we pray and then we walk, and then we pray, and then we walk, and we need to walk in obedience to what your word calls us to do. So before we go any further, God, would you help us to know that your delay does not mean denial. As God's people gathered here this morning, may you know that God's delay is not denial, and that in God being slow to react and to respond, he is calling us to have a fear of him that is an awe and reverence for him in our patience. And God, we pray that to you today.
that whatever our situation, whatever our circumstances, and right now where we feel like you're delayed, would you cultivate in our heart and kindle this fire and, and just continue to pour gasoline on it to where it just fans into flame, uh, this, this awe and respect and fear of you that's greater than this world or things or anything that tris, trips us up or entangles us. Create in your people a healthy fear for you so that we're able to not fix our eyes on the things of this world, but on what you have in store for us. And then God, whatever you're calling us to be proactive in, and I want you to just think about that for a minute. What is God calling you to do? What is God saying? Maybe, maybe it's an apology that you need to give today. Maybe it's, it's a mistake that you need to just own. Maybe it's a relationship that needs mended. Maybe it's, it's answering a call to another job. Maybe it's staying in your current setting. Maybe it's changing your perspective on how you view your kids. Maybe it's helping your parents. Maybe it's how you view the current pain that you're experiencing right now. So many of us deal just with chronic pain, whether that's actual physical pain or emotional pain. We ask God that you would help us to turn our eyes from the things of this world and focus our attention back on you and be proactive in seeking your face. Help us to be patient. Help us to trust you. Help us to depend on you. Because we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.